And uh, there's two verses that uh, I think we'll just read to begin with. Let me read one out of Mark chapter 7. Both of these verses are very familiar verses. But the Pharisees and the scribes thought that they worshipped God. But Jesus had this to say to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men." Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So he brings out two things here related to worship. He says that there is a type of person who honors with their lips, but their heart is far from God. So it has to do with the heart. Worship has to do with the heart, not with the external things, but with the heart. And then he also says... In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Worship has to do with uh, rightly understanding who God is, what God has said. Instead of teaching the traditions of men, it has to do with the truth of God. So, the heart and truth are vitally important for worship. And then the one I had you turn to in John chapter 4 has to do with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Um, We won't read the whole section here. But uh, eventually, after the Lord had talked with her some about living water and and other important things, they got around to the subject of worship because she realized that she was not talking to just an ordinary person here. So in John chapter 4, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she has some questions for this prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. There was a certain area there that the uh, Samaritans said they had to worship on. And you know, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. They pretty much despised one another. <clears throat> so he sa- she says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, we have the truth. The Jewish people have the truth in relationship to many things related to God. So we worship, he says, um, we worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jew. Jews, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If you're going to worship God, it's an absolute necessity. He says they must worship in spirit in truth. So again, you see these things that were brought out in the other scripture. The idea of the heart, the importance of heart, religion, true worship from the heart, and also in the importance of truth. So that's what we want to 
at least begin to look at this evening in relationship to the subject of worship. Why don't we pray here before we go on. Father, we ask that you would teach us by thy spirit now. Bring us on. We're asking for you to work in our hearts here by your truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost everyone worships something or someone. Atheists worships something. Agnostics worship something. Deists worship something. Democrats worship something. Republicans worship something. I would say almost everybody worships in one way or another. Um, I mentioned Deist. This is one that came to mind. I just read not too long ago a quote by this man named Thomas Paine. He was a famous leader, writer, during the time of the Revolutionary War. Well, he wrote a book called The Age of Reason, somewhere around 1795. And in that book, he tells how he has rejected the idea of the God of Christianity, rejected the idea of revelation, and he puts all his emphasis on reason. In fact, he says it this way, My own mind is my own church. My church is my mind. So it's not too hard to tell what he worships. He worships his intellect, his abilities, his thought processes. But I'm saying, the reason I bring that up is that everybody worships something. So we have here a subject that is worldwide in its scope. Now, what I'm going to do this evening is give you some thoughts on worship. And uh, a lot of these are from different things that I've read uh, through the years. Let me just give you a few thoughts on worship from various writers, Christian writers. Um, Worship is the highest function of the human soul. The highest function of the human soul. You see, an animal doesn't worship. But God's given you a soul, a spirit, and you can worship God. And the highest use of that soul is worship. The purpose for which we are created is worship. The essence of the Christian life is worship. The highest moral act a human can perform is worship. And let me read from A.W. Tozer here. He had a little booklet called The Missing Jewel in the Church, and what he was talking about was worship. He says the missing jewel in contemporary Christianity is, is this area of worship. And here's what he says. The purpose of God in sending his Son to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of the Father was that he might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship that we might come back and learn to do again that for which we were created to do in the first place, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling and expressing it and letting it get into our, our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to the Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
I say that the greatest tragedy in the world today is that God has made man in his image and made him to worship him, made him to play the harp of worship before the face of God day and night, but he has failed God and dropped the harp. It lies voiceless at his feet. We were made to worship. And if you don't remember anything else from what I say here tonight, just remember this simple truth. We are saved to worship God. That's why God saved us, that we would worship him. We're saved to worship God. Well, we want to just examine that some then this evening. The two ways that worship, two primary ways that worship can go wrong, as we've already said, if it's not from the heart, it's not pleasing to God. And if it's not according to truth, it's not pleasing to God. Much worship in the world is vain worship because it's not according to truth. It might be very sincere. You know, you can be sincerely wrong. Uh, these men that are uh, part of this group, Al-Qaeda, blowing themselves up in the name of Allah and killing a bunch of innocent people. There's no question about their sincerity. They're, they're, they're dying for their religion. But they're sincerely wrong. Their worship is not according to truth. They have a zeal not according to knowledge, as was spoken of of the Jews. So, much worship in the world is vain worship. Worship of idols. Worship of self. Worship of other men. Worship of demons. Worship of Satan. Uh, it's not according to truth. Most men are worshiping a God of their own imaginations. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Teaching as, that's right out of Romans, see, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Well, one question then should be for whatever worship we're taking part in, is it biblical? Is this according to truth? If not, it's vain worship. People have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's true of much of professing Christianity also. And it's certainly true of the world's religions. Uh, since this is so, if we're going to truly worship God, we must continually be sorting out the traditions and teachings of men from the truth of God. In other words, we have to be careful about this. This is not something you can just uh, assume that because there's supposed worship going on that we can just, you know, join into it. It may indeed be the traditions of men and not the teaching of God. So, we must worship in truth, must submit to God's truth. We must accept what God says, first of all, about himself. If you're going to worship in spirit and truth, you're going to have to accept and acknowledge what God says about himself, that he's holy, that he's sovereign, that he's just, that he's all-knowing. Those things that are clear to us in the scriptures, we must accept what God says about himself. 
we must accept what he says about his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the Lord. This is the one that every knee is going to bow to. This is the one that's the Savior. We must accept those things. We must accept what God says about you and I, that we're sinful. Uh, We're in bad shape. That's what the Bible says. We're we're, we're not uh, just uh, needing a tune-up. We need an overhaul because of our sin. Uh, We need to accept what God says about sin, that it's not just a a small problem that we have here, not just a, a mistake, that sin is exceedingly sinful. We have to believe and accept these things if we're going to worship in spirit and truth. We need to accept what God says about salvation, that there's no other way for a man to be saved except through Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So the one who made us to worship has decreed how we should worship, and we must go along with that. We must worship him as he's revealed himself in Christ and in his word. So that's, that's the one area, the area of truth. But true worship can only come from a regenerate heart. True worship is spiritual in spirit and truth, you see. It's spiritual. It's not carnal. It's not a ritual that you can go through. It's not a formula uh, that you can uh, go down and uh, say that that's worship. Uh, the spiritual, um, the, the whole essence of true worship is spiritual, you see. It's not carnal. It's, it's not anything that the natural man can do. Now, the natural man can perceive and receive a lot of things that they would uh, put under the category of worship, but it's not true worship. Uh, For instance, some people feel like if you have some stained glass windows in your building, that that is really conducive to worship, or candles or big spires on your building, a cathedral, you know. All these things are, are part of what they think of as, as worship and incense and chants and statues and that type of thing, candles. I was thinking about this today, how in the Middle Ages these towns, these cities would get into competitions of who could build the tallest cathedral, have the biggest spire. You know, here's one that's 350 feet tall. Well, we're going to build one 400 feet tall. And when they get that thing built, now we can worship because we have the biggest cathedral. I mean, how, uh, how antithetical to true religion and true worship is such an idea as, as that. Or, you know, this cathedral has this most beautiful stained glass window. Well, we can outdo that. We can have this artist make this beautiful stained glass window. Well, it's, it's uh, the way the natural man views uh, worship, and it's totally wrong. True worship can only come through spiritual means, and it comes by a regenerated heart, the work of God in the heart. 
totally beyond the unregenerate person's comprehension. True worship is totally beyond what the unregenerate can comprehend. Uh, that lost person can perform all kinds of acts of worship, but there's not any true worship in spirit and truth. Uh, you know, in a lot of settings, if you have a certain feeling, then that is considered worship. And what actually is happening there is that they're, they're worshiping worship. A certain kind of feeling is worship, and so they look for that feeling. If they have the feeling, then they've worshiped. But that's, they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping the feeling. They're worshiping this worship experience, the excitement of it. Uh, to worship in spirit and truth, you must be born of the spirit of truth. So it's a, uh, worship is a miracle. Um, so we need to be on guard against that and not, not ever settle for what you might call natural worship because it's not the real thing. Worship is spiritual. A.W. Pink defined worship this way. He said, worship is the new nature, a person that's been given a spiritual nature, it's the new nature in the believer stirred into activity, turning to its divine and heavenly source. The new nature stirred into activity, turning to its divine and heavenly source. It is the spirit turning to him who is spirit. And you see that what Jesus was saying there about, you know, not in this mountain or not in Jerusalem. See, that can be any time, any place. It doesn't matter. What matters is the reality of the truth stirring the heart to adore and devotion. Adore God and devotion to him. True worship is the adoration of a redeemed people preoccupied with God himself. It's not just the emotion stirred. You know, music can do that. Music is such a part of, of, of worship that a lot of times people just equate the two. You know, they say, now that our worship service is the time when we sing. Well, that's wrong. That's a totally wrong idea of worship. But, but music is a big part of worship. I mean, it's an important part. The problem is, is that music can stir your emotions and it not be at all according to truth. Uh, you can, you know, you can get your emotions stirred by all kinds of things. Going to a certain kind of movie can do that, but there's no worship there. Emotions are an important part. I mean, dry, cold, dead worship is, a, is an impossibility because it's, it's not worship. Uh, I thought this was this was good here. Um, it's not an act we perform because God demands it, but an attitude of the new heart adoring and delighting itself in God. It's not a duty, it's a delight. If it's a duty, it's not really worship. 
And I think John Piper did an excellent example of showing what that means. He talked about dutiful roses. He says, dutiful roses are a contradiction. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about, he gives the example of a husband for the anniversary, uh, their, their anniversary, goes to his wife and gives her these roses. And she says, oh, thank you very much, honey. He says, think nothing of it, it's my duty. <laughs> well, you just took away the value of, of the roses. Because it, it, it has to be from affection. It has to be from delight in the person you're giving the roses to. Not, well, you know, I'm doing my duty, so here's the roses. <laughs> Dutiful roses. Well, that's the way it is with worship, too. It's not a duty, it's a delight. And if it's not a delight, if it's not from spirit, you see, you must worship in spirit and truth. And if that's not there, it's very deficient, to say the least. Now, our English word for worship means worth-ship, worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth-ship. In other words, the, uh, to attribute worth to someone or something, worth-ship. And you see how that fits so well with what we're talking about here, because you're, you're ascribing ultimate worth to God in worship, you see, um, it speaks of the worthiness of the object of worship. And that's what we're saying in worship. Psalm, uh, Psalm 18.3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And in the book of Revelation, where you see so much worship, we get a picture of heaven and we see so much worship taking place, here's the type of thing that's said. Four, uh, 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. So here's worship, worshiping him. What do they say? Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. So God is worthy to be praised, first of all. He's worthy of our worship, first of all. Because he's the creator. He made everything. Wouldn't be anything if he hadn't created. So he's worthy right there of worship as a creator. But then you go on a little bit later in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive um, power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Again, the idea of worthy, and this time, not just as creator, but as redeemer. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the one who brought salvation to mankind. So, the idea of worthiness as where we get our word worship. God alone is to be worshipped. Because God alone is worth, uh, the only one worthy.
to be worshipped. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship is expressing to God how worthy he is. Worship is expressing to God how worthy is it, he is. Worship is delighting in God. These are just you know different ways of, of trying to understand this thing of worship. It's delighting in God. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. Reflecting, gladly reflecting, not it's not a duty, it's gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. Now, another way of analyzing this thing of worship is is to look at one of the Greek words that is rendered worship most often, the most frequent Greek word rendered worship in our English New Testament. And I'm not sure how you say this, proskuneo, something like that, P-R-O-S-K-U-N-E-O. And it, it comes from two parts. It means towards and to kiss. Now, that's interesting, isn't it, for worship? Towards and to kiss. So the idea is the heart going out in devotion and adoration. Worship is the heart going out in worship and adoration. Uh, Everett Harrison defined, or he said this, the lifting up of the redeemed spirit toward God in contemplation of his holy perfection. So it's the... It's the lifting up of the redeemed spirit toward God in contemplation of his holy perfection. So worship can, you know, we tend to think of worship because we think of music so often. We tend to think of, of uh, activity or noise. You know, there has to be words. You can worship God in silence. In fact, one person talked about stunned silence as being worship. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about the perfections of God, holy perfection, his majestic holiness, some people in the presence of God's holiness, they're, they're dumb. They can't say anything. That's worship. Can be. Can be a part of worship. <clears throat> Another quote. Here's a man named Frank. Gabaline, he said, Nothing prepares the heart more for worship of the Lord than to contemplate his beauty and perfection. Contemplating the, the beauty and perfection of God is, is something that brings forth worship. Um, now, there is a broader sense, sense in which our worship includes our service to God. What we do day and out day in and day out, to serve God. That's part of worship. But the, the real essence of worship comes from the heart, and then the service flows from that, you see. Um, if it is true worship, it begins with the adoring heart. It doesn't begin with the outward service. The service comes from the adoring heart. Uh, our outward serving must flow from a worshiping heart or our serving will be dead works. Now, I like the way uh, A.W. Tozer put this. Um, he said, 
We're here to be worshipers first and workers only second. We take a convert and immediately make a worker out of him. God never meant it to be so. God meant that a convert should learn to be a worshiper, and after that he can learn to be a worker. Out of enraptured, admiring, adoring, worshiping souls, God does his work. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. In other words, unless it's coming from the heart, it's just not going to be right. Um, when the heart is wrong, everything else is wrong. And I think we can even say this, and I, I, I have a scripture for this I want to show you. If the heart is right, God can overlook quite a few outward things that might be wrong. If the heart is right, stirred by truth, he can, he can overlook uh, quite a few of the, the things that some people put all the emphasis on. Now, let's just look at uh, one scripture back in Second Chronicles chapter 30. This is a time when there had been a time of falling away of the Jewish people. And now they were beginning to come back to God. And they were reinstituting the Passover. Okay? So chapter 30 and verse 18. You'll have to read the context maybe later on sometime, but... For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, otherwise than prescribed. In other words, they hadn't gone through the right ritual here in order to be, take part of the Passover, but they went ahead and ate the Passover. Now, um, for Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who has prepared his heart to seek the Lord, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. In other words, he's saying, would you pardon for this and, and, and overlook this? Because they prepared their hearts, you see. Um, everyone who has prepared his heart to seek the Lord, uh, even though they weren't doing it according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. In other words, uh, everything on the outside wasn't according to the way it should be. But they prepared their hearts to seek the Lord. Well, I say again, if the heart's wrong, everything else is going to be wrong. It <laughs> doesn't matter how it looks. Well, our outward serving must flow from a worshiping heart or it's going to be dead works. God's work is done by God's worshipers. Now here's uh, something that uh, goes along with that. And, and this is something that we brought out before, but I think it's worth mentioning here. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Um, let me just 
expand on that a little bit here. Let's turn to Psalm 135, verse 15. This actually comes up a number of places in the scripture. Psalm 135 and verse 15. The idols, <clears throat> the idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have ears, but they do not see. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. What we worship determines what we become. If we worship false gods, we'll become like them. If we worship the true God, we'll become like him. The more you worship false gods, the more you become like that God, blind and dumb and sinful. Let me... Uh, read something here. Uh, this has to do with with uh, this scripture. Image making destroys human personality and freedom. Idolaters create gods like themselves, but with one exception, their gods lack freedom and personality. You see, here you are as a person, and you make a god, an idol, and it's less than you are. You have personality it doesn't have. It doesn't have that. You can make a mouth on that God, but it can't talk. You can put ears on it, but it can't hear. You can give it eyes, but it can't see. It's less than you are. Uh, let's turn, let's, uh, I'll finish that quote later. Let's turn to Isaiah 44, because that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about. <clears throat> Isaiah 44 He talks about this man who takes, you know, cuts down a tree and makes an image out of it, takes it to a craftsman, and they might work, you know, put, uh, they shape it with their tools, and they might even, you know, put some silver and gold on it. Uh, so he takes some of that wood and does that with it. The other part he takes and makes a fire with it. Well, um, let's just begin reading in verse 18. They do not know nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination, into an idol. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? In other words, he's become dumb and stupid just like the idol that he's made. He's become like the idol, you see. Well, let me read on here. It says, Image-making destroys human personality and free freedom. Idolaters create gods like themselves, but with one exception. Their gods lack freedom and personality. Whether their idols are rag dolls from a savage tribe or some bloodless, now get this, philosophical concept, they never acquire the personality and freedom 
of their makers. In other words, you can get a, you know, an image in, uh, uh, idol in your mind. It's a philosophical concept. Uh, the image makers themselves are more alive than their images. In gradually becoming like the gods they worship, idolaters ultimately lose freedom and personality. They become less a person and more a thing. You become like this God that you made, you see, even if it's a philosophical concept in your mind. Now, I want to give an illustration of that. We're talking about just this simple truth that what we worship determines what we become. And I want to use the example of Charles Darwin. As a young person, he was a uh, one who took the Bible as the word of God and also believed in God. But he, as he grew older and embraced more of the, uh, the ideas of evolution, he left behind any idea of a personal God and the idea of revelation. And basically, there was a philosophical concept in his mind that became his idol. That was the area of, of evolution. He, everything, you know, the final denominator of everything was evolution. And so he has this idol. What's it do to him? I mean, he, he, he was a person that uh, went from, from... Well, let me read. Let me just uh, read the quote here. This is from an auto, the uh, autobiography of Charles Darwin, and he wrote this uh, near the end of his life. He said, Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. Uh, and even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. He also said, Formerly pictures gave me considerable, and music great, very great delight. So pictures, he's talking about art. So the poetry, artwork, uh, music, he said, gave me great delight. But now for many years... I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. He said, I've tried to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerable dull, dull that it nauseates me. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures, for art, and music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. So what's happened here? Well, he's become like what he worships. That's what's happened. He's become like what he worshiped. He had a philosophical concept that left God out of the picture and said that nature is all there is and that I, I'm part of that, you see. And what happens? It dries up. This whole area of, of appreciation for art and beauty and music and poetry. So, again, just this truth of we become like what we worship. They become less of a person and person and more of a thing. Now, here's an interesting quote. A quote. The gods we worship will write their names on our faces. The gods we worship will write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. A man will worship something, 
have no doubt about that either. He may think that his tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of his heart, but it will out. In other words, it'll come out. Whatever you're worshiping down on the heart level, it's going to come out. Uh, That which dominates will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Well, I kind of put that under the heading of, of serving because what we worship will determine how we serve. If our hearts worship God, our hands will serve Him. If we're worshiping a holy God, we will be becoming more holy. We will be becoming more holy. If we are worshiping the only wise God, we will be becoming more wise. If we are worshiping the God of all truth, we will be becoming more truthful. The more we worship the God who is love, the more loving we will become. The more we worship Christ, the more Christ-like we will become. So what we worship determines what we become. Well, let's try to sum up here then a little bit. If we're talking about service, we need to realize that that flows out of worship. It's impossible to truly worship and not serve God and man. But the first thing has to be the heart. The heart stirred by God's truth. Worshiping in spirit and truth. And here's an interesting thing, maybe to close with this. It says that God seeks those who would worship him. Back there in, in John chapter 5, um, or John chapter, chapter 4, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God doesn't need our worship. He's self-sufficient. He needs, he needs nothing, and he needs no one. He doesn't need our worship, but he wants our worship. He wants us to worship him. And we need to worship God. He doesn't need our worship, but we need to worship God. If we're going to be what God made us to be, we need to worship God because that's what he made us to be, his worshipers. And we'll never be what we were created to be until we worship God. Now, I don't usually quote Karl Barth because he 
had a few things related to his understanding of Scripture that I think were off track. But this quote is, is pretty good, so uh, I just wanted to read this to you. Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. This is what we were made for, you see. So again, I would just say this. We are saved to worship God in spirit and truth. Strong affection for God rooted in the truth of God. That's what worship's all about. Strong affection for God rooted in the truth of God is biblical worship. Well... Those are a few thoughts related to this subject of worship. God wants our heart. That scripture there in, in the Proverbs where God says, Give me thy heart. And uh, it has to be heart worship or it's not real worship. And it has to be according to truth, God's truth. I've asked Jill to sing a song here. Uh, some of you probably know it, but it fits in well. It's uh, called Give Me Thy Heart. And uh, so, if you haven't ever heard it, it's a good song to consider the words to.
Thank you. 